if you've got Jonah open, um, the book that is, um, that would be good. We'll be looking at three and four just for a few minutes this morning. Uh, Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you, Lord, that we can jump up and down, Lord, we can be happy. Uh, Lord, you've given us a joy that, Lord, is undefeatable. You've given us a peace, Lord, that's unshakable, Lord, and a love that we can't lose. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the good things you give to us. And Lord, this story of Nineveh and Jonah, Lord, is a story that um, we ought to all be thinking and applying to our own lives. That Lord, even if we're the most rebellious, terrible person, you still love us. Even if we're one of yours and we're grumpy and distant from you, you still love us. And Lord, your desire is to bring all people to yourself. And we thank you for that, Lord. Your heart is good. Lord, you're the King of Kings, the Holy One. Lord, you will be just in saving no one. But Lord, your love means you want to save as many, if not all. That's what we want. Your desire is for everyone to be saved. Um, and Lord, we thank you for that. And we just pray now as we look at these chapters together, that you'll be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever reacted strangely to something in life? Um, when Andrea was 30, just uh, three or four years ago, um, I took her to uh, Florence uh, for a holiday that's a good gift. That's the sort of thing. If you're a husband, that's the sort of level I'm at. Um, if you've never done that sort of thing, well, I'm running a seminar in November. Um, if you want to take notes about how to be a great husband. Anyway, um, so I, I arranged it. I booked the uh, quality EasyJet flights um, out of Stansted all the way sort of like that, vaguely to, to uh, Florence, uh, Pisa, in fact. And, uh, and so I was all excited. And I was going to present Andrew with a Lonely Planet travel guide to Florence or to Italy. And that was going to be the gift. And we went around her sister's house. And, uh, and I gave her the, the present. And she unwrapped it. And I thought, this is it. Months of preparation. Siphoning off money. And, uh, and this was Andrew's reaction, just to embarrass her. Oh. <laughs> What's that then? I said, we're going to Florence. Are we? When? Tomorrow. Oh. <laughs> oh. And I was thinking, oh. <laughs> it was a shock, to be fair. We had a fantastic time. And, uh, but isn't it funny how sometimes something really good can happen? Uh, something amazing can be right in front of you, and you can react, not in total shock, but in a complete opposite of that sometimes. And there are some people that when they are presented with a good thing that God is doing, or a good thing that's happening around them because of their heart, uh, they can act, uh, react completely wrong. I've got a very short video of uh, people reacting badly to good situations. You may identify with this if you've got younger children. We've all been there. <laughs> if you're a parent, you probably made your mind up about the kids in that video. Um, but in our final talk, we're going to be looking at Jonah and Jonah's reaction um, to something good that God did. Um, and he's not actually dissimilar to the kids um, in, that, in that video. Unlike the, the sort of not reacting because of being surprised, he reacts badly because actually his heart... It's just completely wrong. His heart is completely wrong before God. And just before we carry on, I'll read to you uh, the words of Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 35. And Jesus says this in John, Mark, sorry, John. <laughs> it's John seven fifteen. Some fool has written 35 on my bit of paper. I don't know who did that. Um, shame on you. Um, John 7, verse 15. Sorry, David. Um, Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And he goes on to say, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of a man's heart, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, slander, envy, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man 
unclean. And uh, as Jesus said um, a bit later on, uh, that wisdom is proved by her children. Um, And actually the way we behave shows really what our heart is like and where our heart is. And it's the things that we do and we say and the way we react to situations that shows where our heart is. And Jonah's heart in chapter 4, as God gently reaches out to him, as he watches and disagrees with Nineveh being forgiven, it just shows how far this man has strayed from God and from the heart of the living God. And it really just struck me, struck me this week that he was a man whose heart was full of enmity and hostility. He had an angry heart. And it really hit me this week that enmity and hostility is a very powerful thing to have in, within you. Um, it has the power to turn wise, otherwise wise and kind people into vicious and vindictive people. And Jonah was a prime example of that. And this morning it's worth asking, how are our hearts as we come to worship God in this place? What's your heart like this morning? What's my heart like in this place? It's not what goes into the body that makes us bad, but what comes out of our hearts that shows whether we're clean or unclean. And as we finish this book, we're supposed to look at the character of Jonah and compare him to the character of God. And it's worth taking a self-evaluation test of your heart. Are we bitter people? this morning are we angry people are we hostile do we allow those negative emotions to twist our view of life twist our relationships i knew a woman once um i've known lots of women but i knew this particular woman years ago and uh, and she used to complain about everybody if you met her you would know what i meant very quickly and uh, and every time i saw her mm, i was down the bowling club and betty did this so i told her straight and I gave her a piece of my mind because I tell it like it is, she used to tell me. And I thought, wow, I wish people, I bet people would love to tell it like it is to you. Um, but whatever happened in this woman's life, it was always somebody else's fault. It was always someone else that caused the pain. She was kind and caring, or so she claimed. Even though every time you bumped into her, you would hear within 30 seconds of how much she hated her son-in-law. And how much he got right on her nerves. From the gas man to parking attendants to church leaders, even to her elderly housebound friends, everybody got on her nerves and they all experienced her wrath. But she couldn't see that at the heart of all those broken relationships was her sharp tongue and bitter heart. And this morning, I know I'm going off at a tangent, but let me ask you a question and me. Do we ever put on to other people the crooked shape of our heart? Do we allow our negativity and our darkness and we blame other people? Are you a bitter person this morning? Are you an angry person? Are you someone that attacks other people because you're unhappy and you don't like it or because your heart is wrong? Well, let me say this, just to cheer up the mood. If you are that person, I promise you, you will end up like Jonah. Jonah ends this book not enjoying communing with the living God. He doesn't enjoy the favor of God. He doesn't see God and get to really be near him, does he? At the end of this book, what's he doing? Staring at Nineveh, looking at what God's going to do, miserable. And if you have a bitterness in your heart and it goes unchecked, you will sit back and watch other people live their lives whilst you wallow away in lonely bitterness. There we are, that's a a joke to cheer you up um, on Sunday morning. (laughs) But back to the story. 
We've seen Jonah receive the call of God. He gets up and he travels 500, to get up to travel 500 miles to a city called Nineveh to tell them to stop being wicked or God would destroy them. This story takes place about 700 odd years before Jesus came to earth. And uh, we're running something called the Bible course over these next um, eight weeks, two, two to three months. And what the Bible course will do is help you put all these stories in their proper context, in the proper big story of the whole Bible. If you're not in a small group, in a connect group as we call them, uh, please see me or Andrea and we'll get you in a group. It's not too late. So God calls Jonah uh, and because he knows God and because he's well aware that God doesn't actually want to destroy Nineveh, he wants to forgive them. That's God's heart. He says, no way am I going there. And so he jumps on a boat and tries to go two and a half thousand miles toward a place called Tarshish. Whilst on that boat, God pursues Jonah by sending a huge storm, not to hurt him, but to restore him. Push comes to shove, and Jonah's shoved overboard. And as he sinks to the bottom of the ocean, as his life ebbs away in his final moments, he cries out to God, and God rescues him. In that fish, he says, sorry. He determines to follow God's will again and go to Nineveh. The fish vomits him out. I like Mark's graphic description. Who'd follow, who would listen to a man covered in whale sick, frankly? Probably nobody. Um, but presumably he had a wash before he got there. Um, and so he goes to the city Nineveh. And in chapter 3, verse 1 and 3, we get a sense of just how great Nineveh is. In verse 1, God says, sorry, verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh. And then in verse 3, uh, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, was a very important city. So this was a great and important city in the ancient Near East. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And a visit is said to have taken three days. Quite what that means, I'm not sure. But it's meant to have taken three days to fully take in this city and experience it. In chapter 4, verse 11, God says to Jonah that there are 120,000 people in Nineveh. 120,000, that's big for an ancient city. It's small now because we have mega cities, don't we? But this is big for an ancient city. And actually, uh, it lay lost for a good 1,800 years, Nineveh, probably longer. Um, and they didn't know where it was until they discovered it under a mound of earth. It's a bit like when you lose your keys behind the fridge, isn't it? You think, is it under that mound of earth? Oh, yeah, look. Um, but under the mound of earth, and when they excavated it, they realized that Nineveh, uh, when it was finally destroyed, Uh, About 100 years later, after Jonah, it would have had about 175,000 people. So it's a big city. Can you imagine if God called one of you to travel to New York and to Queens, one of the suburbs, one of the areas of New York, which houses 108,000 people? Can you imagine God saying, go to Queens in New York and tell them to repent of their sin? Can you imagine going in there and saying that God says, repent of your sin? You'd be, whoa, that's terrifying, isn't it? But how more amazing would it be if the whole of that area just said, yes, we'll make Jesus our saviour and follow God. Wouldn't that be amazing? And as Jonah enters this great city so far from God, he doesn't even get through day one because something amazing happens. Chapter 3, verse 4 to 6 says, On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. This is day one. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, 
and sat down in the dust. Wow, can you imagine? What an amazing event to be a part of. He preaches uh, God's word. He says, repent or God's going to destroy you. And everybody, within seconds, the whole city, even the king, takes their outer garments off, put this sackcloth on, and they just fall before God and say, sorry, they beg forgiveness. How amazing would that be to watch a whole city change like that? He preaches and his preaching spreads like wildfire. Why did they repent so quickly? Well, the Ninevites had had a difficult few years. Their empire was in trouble. They'd had rebellion and fighting in their different territories. The king had died and not left a successor. So that leaves political turmoil. But to top it off, they'd recently lost a military battle, which coincided with a total eclipse of the sun. And the Ninevites thought that meant ill will was coming their way. And so maybe that helped uh, before Jonah preached. But it's good news, isn't it? 120,000 people saved by one man preaching. It's good news, isn't it? Yeah, sure. (laughs) I think it'd be brilliant news, actually. Fantastic. Saved from being destroyed. They know God's favor. They're going to change. Fantastic. God's goodness wins over man's wickedness. God's grace shown in a situation where it seems so impossible. Yet in the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah isn't happy at all. He's angry. So Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He was disappointed in God. Can you imagine being disappointed in God? The Holy One, the King of Kings. I'm disappointed in you. Why have you done it like that? But he's disappointed, he's displeased with God. You see, chapter 3 in the story of Nineveh isn't actually the main part. This is a kind of subtext. Chapter 4 and Jonah's reaction and God's reaction to him is the real story. The whole story is about Jonah and his reaction to God. He's offended by God's grace. Remember these people, these Ninevites are Israel's enemies. They're a wicked bunch and Jonah doesn't think God should forgive them. Can you imagine being a Christian and thinking that God shouldn't forgive somebody? Can you imagine someone coming into this church and you thinking, well, they shouldn't be here. They don't belong here. God shouldn't be working in that person's life. Of course you can't. But this man had that view. They don't deserve to be forgiven by God. In Nahum um, chapter 3, um, verses, sorry, chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 9, I hope, um, tells us about the Ninevites in a bit more detail. Uh, a prophecy against them says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And then verse um, 19. No, verse 9. I'm having a bad day, forget it. Um, but you got the point that it is. Oh, that is what I was going to read out. Yeah. Nothing can heal your wound, your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. But who has not felt your endless cruelty? It was that final line that caught my eye. Who has not felt your endless cruelty? The Ninevites were a wicked bunch. Their treatment of those people they conquered was notorious. They routinely chopped people's hands and feet off. They gouged out people's eyes. They used to skin and empower captives occasionally. Not every day, but just occasionally. Can you imagine that? How could God forgive them? And that clearly is what Jonah's thinking. Why them? You can't let them off, God. We've got to kill them. They're our enemies. Look at the things they've done. But before we get on Jonah's back, it's interesting to know that Nineveh is uh, pretty much modern-day Mosul. And Mosul in Iraq 
is a stronghold of Islamic State, ISIS, uh, as they're called. A group which is as barbaric and wicked as the Ninevites were, who destroy world heritage sites with no thought of anything else, who kill and oppress your brothers and sisters every day, who levy taxes against Christians and kill them and kill their children or kill them while their children watch. Your brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, every day in that part of the world. They throw people off buildings because they don't like their lifestyle. They've committed awful atrocities. How would you feel if I went to Mosul tomorrow, proclaimed Christ crucified, and forgiveness, total forgiveness of sin? And to a man, every single one of those IS fighters burned their black flags, brought down their government, and repented and followed Jesus. Of course, officially, we'd all be happy. But perhaps some of you would wonder how God can let them off scot-free. How can God let them off? Surely they have gone beyond the grace of God. But let me tell you, the grace of God is as scandalous as it gets. God's grace is a complete scandal. Because every single one of us in this room, including every IS fighter and everybody else in the world, from the least to the best, from the terrorist to the charity worker, deserves death for our sin. The Bible says there's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. There's a song, a Christian song called Outrageous Grace, and it is outrageous that God would save Nineveh. It is outrageous that Jesus Christ loves members of Islamic State. It's ridiculous. It is outrageous. It is crazy. How can you love them? But get this. It's also outrageous that every single one of you in this room, including me, can be called a child of the living God. There is no difference. All have sinned. Our gospel doesn't start with the line, for God so loved the nice. For God so loved people from the West. For God so loved the middle classes. For God so loved those without a checkered past. For God so loved those who don't say anything wrong. It starts simply, God so loved the world. To mean every single one who's ever walked on this planet. But Jonah doesn't get it, does he? The Ninevites turn from their sin overnight and he goes east of the city. He sits down and he sulks. Of all the things you see in life, I hate sulking the most. I hate it in children. If I run into your children, I'll pretend I don't mind. But sulking, when you sit in your own kids, is awful, isn't it? When they do this, you think, what are you sulking for? Goodness sake, get over it, come on. But sulking is terribly sulking at God showing grace to 120,000 people who are going to be destroyed. What is the matter with him? What is the matter with him? How can you sulk? But what does God do? How does God respond to this man Jonah who's already rebelled, already run away, already uh, moaned and complained? What does God do when he sits there, folds his arms, taps his foot and moans and sulks at God's goodness? What does God do? I'll tell you what I'd do. Well, I won't tell you what I'd do. But you can imagine what I'd want to do. But this is what we read in verse 6. 
Then the Lord provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. What does God do to this miserable, grumpy, sulking man? He blocks the sun from his head so he can be comfortable. How brilliant is that? How brilliant God is that even when you grumble and moan and sulk, he still loves you and still seeks to make you comfortable. And notice that this is the only time in this book, verse 6, that Jonah is happy. He's not happy at being rescued from a fish. He's not happy at seeing these people turn from their sin. He's only happy when God stops the sun hitting his head. That's just how grumpy this man is. He's thinking of himself. Verse 7, we read about the worm that God sends and it eats into this vine and it dies. Jonah, again, is extremely angry. It would be better for me to die than live. And God says to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about this vine? And in these final next two verses, we see Jonah's heart and God's. Then from verse 10, after he says, I'm angry enough to die, God says, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh was more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And the book just finishes. (laughs) It just ends because that is the final thought that you must take away from it. Is God not concerned even for Nineveh? And so what we learn about this book about God is that he is gracious. And this matters to us because all other philosophies and religious teachings teach often that God is a God who has to be appeased. That you've got to do enough good to somehow outweigh the bad you've done. In Islamic teaching, you have to get the scales to match up or balance in your favour. You have to do enough good to outweigh the bad you've done. That will never work. That's why they need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. It's the same in Hinduism and Buddhism. It's all about the work you do. And bless them. They try so sincerely, some of them, to do that good work to get into paradise or heaven or nirvana. But it doesn't work because our bad always outweighs our good. And then Christ came. And he was our perfect righteousness. So that if we were going to be weighed, it would be his goodness And the scales would do that. He is a God of grace. The Bible tells the truth. The only truth. That God is a God of grace. And that grace leads to salvation and everlasting life. And that really is what you must take away from the story of Jonah this morning. And these last three weeks. That the God we worship, the true and living God, is concerned about everybody loves everybody he reaches out to everybody the wicked and the righteous the self-centered he reached out to Nineveh evil Nineveh also grumpy Jonah and that's amazing isn't it I don't know about you sometimes I wish uh, I heard different testimonies at church well when I go to somebody else's church perhaps but often you hear testimonies don't you and you only ever hear one story before I knew Jesus I was wretched I did all these terrible things. I became a Christian. 
and now I'm saved. And they're brilliant stories. But I've been a Christian 25, 26 years, I forget. Um, a long time. You know what I'd love to hear? I'd love to hear the story of a Christian stand up and say, do you know what? I was a Christian and I mucked it up for about 10 years. And I kept drifting from God and I was half-hearted and I was a bit miserable and I didn't do what God wanted and I never read my Bible and I hardly ever attended church. Yet God still loved me and he called me back. And I feel like I've been saved all over again. And I suspect some of you would love to hear that testimony a bit more often uh, as well. But that's the God we worship. You cannot drift so far that he will never want you back. You cannot sink so low that he won't scoop to save your soul. But maybe this morning, maybe you don't believe that God sees you in that light. Uh, Maybe this morning, um, maybe you see yourself like a Ninevite. Maybe you see yourself as someone that's done bad things and that God isn't interested in you. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time like me. And maybe you've done things that equally you feel pretty terrible and you're thinking that God's given up on you. I can't tell you the amount of times the devil said to me, you did it again. God's had it with you now. That's it. That's your final chance. You're out. That's what God will do to you. But then I read this story and I realize that that's not how my God works. My God wants me to receive his grace. So I want to ask you to stand up. If that's okay. (laughs) And I don't know if you feel like any of those two things. But sometimes we have to receive what God has on offer to us. God offers us his grace and his forgiveness. He offers us his love, unconditional love. And all we need to do is actually just open the door. Revelation says, I stand at the door and knock. Who opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. And this morning, God wants to come into those dark places or come into that part of your character or, or your situation where you're feeling that you've had the door shut for a long time. And just that phrase, you need to receive God's grace. Um, I just wonder if that's something for someone this morning. So I'm going to ask going to pray for all of us. Um, now and if you want to you could put your hands out just as a symbolic sign that you want to just receive God's grace fully and, and do away with all that negativity and make a full return you don't have to if you want to that's fine but I want to pray for you and for myself as well let's pray Father God we thank you that you are the King of Kings thank you Lord that you are the Lord of Lords Lord these last three weeks we've seen um, the worst of man in Nineveh but we've seen actually the worst of your people in Jonah we've seen Lord a man Lord content to run away from his God content um, to be bad to hide we've seen Lord people that don't love you at all chopping people's hands off and gouging eyes and being wicked yet Lord the subject of this story is your grace a God who pursues a God who rescues a God who loves and Father I want just to pray for everybody in this room that they would receive your grace again that they would know that you see them as your children if they know jesus as their savior that every time they say sorry you wipe the slate clean again that lord you forget that sin it's gone that lord they may see themselves or we may see ourselves as terrible people but you see us as children you love us unconditionally and just those perhaps some people here or that phrase receive god's grace 
I just believe, Lord, there are some here this morning that just need to, again, just say, Lord, okay, I accept that you love me. I accept that you're gracious. I accept that you're with me. And if that is you, just say that to yourself this morning and this afternoon and this week. I accept that God loves me. I accept how he sees me. And Lord, we just lift up everybody in this room now. In Jesus' name.